right. So I'm a Midtown. Welcome back to our podcast. I'm here with Hannah and uh, we have sadly, we're coming to the end of Fruit of the Spirit, the Fruit of the Spirit series. Um, it's very emotional. Season. Yes. And, and thankfully coming to the beginning of summer today is June the 2nd uh, in our recording. And I know for me, there's just a lot of excitement around, well, the pool, you know, hopefully consistently warm weather, which we've not gotten here in Indy. But also now new summer rhythms, managing children at home full time and uh, and a son who's going into high school. I know you guys are in the same boat with the, the ch- this changing of the season. Yes. And it's also an unusual summer because last year we had to cancel everything and all of our typical southern uh, summer rhythms, you know, like camp and um, internships or activities were put on pause. And this year, I think I delayed a little bit too much in getting my kids summer scheduled because we didn't know what was coming. And now I'm like, oh no, we've got to get stuff to do. We need to know what you're doing this summer. Um, It'll all come obviously, but I felt like I was just a little behind the eight ball um, because I didn't, I wasn't prepared for everything to open up again. Well, that's an interesting thing. I feel like there's also going to be this like gorging of ourselves on everything summer, just because we're trying to make up for, uh, with the locust eight last year. Um, but I'm curious just quickly as somebody who's reflected deeply on the seasons, uh, what is your favorite thing about summer? Did you all have like a, uh, either like a, like a favorite routine or rhythm or a place you guys go or something you do that kind of like is the quintessential summer experience for you? Well, for me, summer means home. Um, hmm. we do go on vacation, but I grew up, um, with a definite summer rhythm because my, my parents were teachers. And so, um, summer meant we got to stay closer to home. And with that came a lot of gardening, like you were working really hard in the middle of the summer to, um, either weed or tend and then pick and preserve. And so summer always meant home base for me. It didn't really mean going a lot of different places. It meant settling Mm. into the rhythms, um, of being close to home. So I always like it. And when I became an adult and everyone else didn't stop for summer, um, it kind of surprised me because I was like, no, 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 wait a minute. Summer comes, everyone stops working. We get to stay home and then we go back to work in the fall because that's the way I had learned the rhythm with my parents. Um, and unfortunately that's not what happens. (laughs) You'll have to work in the summertime. Yes. Yeah. My mom is a teacher. And so summers are very different for us than for other families who are just normal people who are working year round. It's interesting here in Indy schools don't start back till after Labor Day in Michigan. I say in this region, like Michigan people are used to like not going back to the fall because of the weather patterns there. Um, here, what's interesting. So just part B of my question to you, this will tell me a lot about you. Um, my son starts high school like July the 28th. So it's the earliest we've ever started school. And like the Indianapolis public school system usually starts European. Right, right. right. So the the trade-off is that you get longer breaks throughout the year. So you get two week fall break, two week spring break, instead of just one week. What, which side of this perennial family debate are you on longer summers or longer breaks throughout the year? Oh, you know, we lived in New Zealand for a year and had that cycle of like six weeks in the summer and then two weeks. And folks really, really liked it. I can see the benefit of it, um, but I think my heart is really attached to summer. Mm. Like I'm very nostalgic and I just have this emotional connection to long summers. They Mm. make no sense. 
I mean, like if we're just being efficient and keeping kids on track with learning and I understand all of the arguments for a year round school, mm. but my nostalgia gets the better of me. Okay. Well, you've decided with my wife and my oldest daughter who are big, big fans of the uh, long summers. I personally am actually more of a fan. Maybe, maybe this is older. I, maybe I wouldn't have felt this way when I was a teenager, but as I get older, the thought of longer breaks throughout the year is really attractive to me. I love the thought of a two week block in October, a two week block, maybe a three week block over the winter holidays or four week block, and then two more in the spring. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in control. Nobody's asking me here in Indy. So diversity, right? Yes. Well, um, hard segue, uh, into fruit of the spirit. As we are wrapping this series up, we land on what I, when Joel, uh, and I were talking through this message, Joel, uh, Bustle, one of our deacons preached this sermon last Sunday, did a great job. I told him, I said, man, you have, I think an uphill battle, probably the hardest fruit to preach in the series, in my opinion, is faithfulness because it's the most boring fruit of the spirit. Like it's like, everybody's like, yes, love, joy, you know, uh, be a peacemaker, be faithful. <laughs> I, when I think of faithfulness, I just have this mental image of somebody who's boring, boring, boring and predictable and consistent. Boring, yes. Consistent, <laughs> but stable, but it, maybe yes, yeah, stable and and as a person who doesn't value stability, I'm learning to the older I get. Uh, yeah, well, it, people like us who are a little more, you know, fluid, we need that stability. We yes, like my husband Nathan is stable. Right? Yes, he is the continuity to our family's life. Um, and over the years, I've realized that like. That's like really important. Yes, it to is. Have that kind of consistency. Yes, um, stability enables creativity, right? And enables uh, you to do to take risks. But, but it is a baseline of trust. That baseline yes. of things are going to be orderly. Things are going to be consistent. You can trust this person is going to show up. Um, and I have to say, like that was one thing with my kids that I have struggled with as a mother. They they will remind me when I need to pick them up from school. They never remind their dad, but they will be <laughs> like, mom, if you pick me up at 1.30, you need to leave the house at 1.10, please be there. And mm. that's when I knew I was a failure. As a <laughs> well, and, and I think about, you know, like my, some of my literary heroes, it is somebody like a Wendell Berry. I know you also appreciate Wendell Berry who lives, you know, in my home country, in my home uh, space of Kentucky state, Kentucky. Um, he writes about stability, you know, and kind of the stability that uh, like kind of builds the fabric of like rural communities for relationally and, and vocationally and otherwise. And when I think about, you know, the kind of person I want to be and want to be around faithfulness is, it is so important. You know, I think Joel pointed this out in the sermon that we live in a time where we have so many choices. And I think, especially in a, in an urban context, people come and people go, and it's, it's not easy to find reliable relationships, uh, you know, as a family to find reliable rhythms, um, reliable community, uh, reliable institutions. I think, you know, we're in some ways as a culture, like crying out for, faithfulness, you know? Um, but it is challenging. I mean, there's so, what do you, as you think about some of the contemporary challenges, maybe either personally or just as you look out 
into the the world in which we live? What do you see as some of the big obstacles to um, to faithfulness? And maybe how, maybe how would you define faithfulness? And what do you see as some of the obstacles? Yeah, and you know, that sense of being able to trust that someone's going to do what they've said they they're going to do, that they can commit, um, that they will fulfill their word, that their word is their bond, is what I think of in terms of faithfulness. It's that sense of, I can trust this person. Um, and like Joel pointed out, so much of our current culture really fears commitment. Um, we, we fear for a variety of reasons, you know, there is the sense of, I, I can't commit to this because something else might come along and I want to keep my options open. And that's a more kind of um, maybe indulgent reason why we would stay from commitment. But I've also heard folks talking about even struggling to commit to marriage because they don't know if they can sustain it. And there's this fear of, you know, I came from spaces that couldn't sustain marriage. I had a background maybe where I saw people not keeping their promises. And so I'm afraid to even make the promises to other people. Um, I, I had a friend recently telling me, you know, he and his girlfriend got married, but they were really afraid of making vows to each other. And so they basically wrote their vows in a way that didn't bind them. It was whenever you want to get out of this, you can get out of it. Um, and, and it was just, I think some of that's rooted in our own sense of saying, I don't know if I can fulfill this. I don't know if I can make a promise and fulfill it. So some of it's driven by shame, um, in a sense of, I don't, I know that I can't measure up to this standard. Mm -hmm. So I don't therefore even want to try to commit to it, um, because I know that I'm going to fail and maybe some of it then is you're saying is driven by our wounds uh, and the harm that's been done to us by others who've not been faithful to their promises. Whether I, I think of a a woman in our uh, in our community who just uh, was sharing with my wife and I her struggles to trust God um, because of her experiences of God is kind of mediated through her her spouse, you know, or through her husband. And and I hear that a lot, especially from women. Like if this is what God's like, or if this is the God of this man, and this is who, uh, you know, who he represents. I don't want anything to do with that, with that God, with that, with that community. Very much. And, and I think, you know, what we are struggling with, even as we think of this as a fruit of the spirit is we're going back to remember that these are all rooted in the character of God. And in so far as people represent God to us, whether it's a church, um, whether it's, family, parents, or a spouse, we are going to be tempted to not trust God himself because these people represented a faithless God. Their lack of commitment or truthfulness or doing what they said they were and what they would do really brings in us this lack of trust. And that's not something um, that we can just overcome by having more faith. Right. And I, and I think that's a temptation sometimes when people are struggling with trusting God to be faithful, we put the burden on them and say, well, you just need to have more faith. If you had enough faith, you could do this. And what's fascinating to me is that's not really the way um, the scripture calls us to believe. It, it centers more on God is a God who fulfills his promises. And when you know his character, 
and you see what he's done, that's going to draw out of you trust. The trust and the faith that you place in him is going to come from his work and his character, not just you kind of producing some trust or faith inside of yourself. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think that sometimes there's a tendency within the church for Christians and specifically leaders in certain spaces to undervalue how, how deeply wounded people, um, yeah, you know, because there's a lot of talk about like, oh, there's this kind of uh, uh, safety culture and victim culture and, you know, um, people want safety and we've kind of idolizing safety. Do you think there's a tendency sometimes to not really, to maybe underestimate how much that harm and in the harm the church itself has caused in being faithless has impacted particularly a younger generation and how they show up. Cause that, that is like the number one thing I feel like I hear from our congregation is, is I, I want to feel safe. I want to feel like I can trust and, and that desire to, to have vulnerability and intimacy, but also the fear of like, but I know this is not a safe place. The church historically has not been. And yet we hear all of, all of our elders kind of defending the church and uh, saying, well, you, you know, you just need to be tougher or just, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, when you hear that call for safety, whether it's safety in the church or safe places in education, it's very easy to jump on it and say, you just need to get a thicker skin. Um, you need to harden up. And, and I hear from older generations, I, I know from my, myself, when Nathan and I would be in hard situations in our churches, different ministries, we would go to older people and say, we're experiencing this and invariably their advice back to us was you need to thicken your skin. You need to just kind of harden up and deal with it. This is what ministry is. And, and that really hit us wrong. Um, obviously we have room for growth. We have room for greater trust in God, but I thought there was just a dismissal of the instability and insecurity we were feeling. And so when I hear people say, I need safety, I want to ask myself and be curious and say, why? What has happened that safety has become one of the dominant questions of our time? And I think if you're, you're honest about our culture, we have very few stable places. Our homes aren't stable. Our communities aren't stable. Our nation isn't stable. Our churches aren't stable. So you have an entire generation that has come up without that kind of cycle of rhythm of faithfulness. They haven't mm seen faithfulness in their families. They haven't seen a habit and, and a liturgy of the same thing being able to trust. And I think that's one of the things that's fascinating about the natural world, even when God um, describes himself as faithful, especially right after the, the flood in Genesis 8, he signifies his faithfulness, not just with the rainbow, but I will bring the seasons, you know, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, you're, you're going to see this cycle. And there's something about the repetition of commitment, the repetition of faithfulness that allows us to relax and trust it. And insofar as this generation has fragmented society, has a fragmented community, they're not able to grow up in those liturgies of faithfulness. I think it's entirely legitimate that they wouldn't feel safe um, and that they would need more proof mm. that they are going to be safe. Mm. So there's not, so it's not just that this generation, maybe say a younger generation is 
there's snowflakes or the, there's a fragility there. There's also a cultural sickness or a cultural disorder that has led to that, that we need to take seriously and reckon with and think about how to reform and how to um, speak to and um, offer a different way, uh, a different structure, a different, you know, sort of way of being that, that leans into faithfulness. Right. And, and, and what you're saying also is that faithfulness then is not just an abstract idea or a virtue. It's, it's a person, it's a God himself. And, and it's, so it's, how do we, how do we represent the faithfulness of God and how do we point people to the person who is the one who is faithful as we seek to rebuild those trust structures. Right. Yeah, and I think just a real simple example of this is what is your tolerance level for disagreement? If you are in a relationship where you know this person loves you and has proven that they are going to be there over and over and over again, you trust them, you have a higher tolerance for conflict with them. You know that when you get in the fight, it's not going to be the fight that ends everything. If a relationship is tenuous though, any small form of disagreement can break that relationship and you feel the need to get rid of the conflict very quickly because you can't trust that the relationship will survive it. Um, And I think that level of comfort, even with disagreement, signals to us as a broader society, we just don't trust each other Mm. and we haven't been faithful to each other um, in small ways as well as great. And so we are in this moment where being faithful also is a very compelling witness Mm. um, because it shows something different and it shows the character of God um, as someone who keeps his promises, shows up when he says he's going to show up, commits to us um, and commits to his word. So faithfulness is not boring. It's very, very important for the future of flourishing uh, of our society as we seek to rebuild social trust, institutional trust, um, and you know, interpersonal trust within the church. When we when we think about this from the natural world, and we think about this tension of faithfulness, um, what do we learn from the natural? What does the natural world have to teach us about what it means to be to see God's faithfulness and also to cultivate faithfulness in our lives? Well, you know, like I mentioned um, previously, there the seasons themselves, the cycles that we exist in within the natural world testify to that stability and the faithfulness of God, whether it's um, the cycling through the seasons, whether it's the cycles of the moon and the sun, the fact that we have a calendar that works, that we can predict certain things will happen in the future based on certain physical laws. All of that is testament to a God who is faithful to maintain the universe in a way that is predictable, reliable, and stable based on his own character. And and I think it's just so fascinating how much we take that for granted. Like we take for granted that every time we drop a pencil, it will fall to the ground because gravity will always work. Um, Everything that we have designed, everything that we have created is dependent on these core assumptions. You know, planting seeds at a certain time because we trust that certain cycles will happen that will bring them to fruition and we'll be able to um, have a harvest. And I was really thinking about that um, within turning of days in relationship to these rhythms that even though they have variability, you know, like maybe summer comes a little later in terms of when it warms up 
you still know summer is going to come. You still trust that the season will change. Um, and, and this is what I wrote about God's faithfulness revealed through the natural world. Who could have imagined this? What designer would have said, I'll set everything in a motion with enough rhythm to keep it in place, but then within this order, I'll introduce variability. Who would set the sun, moon, and stars in the heavens to give us signs to guide our days, months, and years, only to give us the winds and waters to disrupt those same seasons? Who would make a world that is tilted ever so slightly, just enough off balance that he's needed to balance it? Think of it, an entire cosmos designed to teach you this one thing, to trust him and him alone, an entire cosmos designed to teach you faith. The writer to the Hebrews describes faith this way. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And so it is with the seasons. It's only because we have seen past seasons that we believe in future ones. It's only because we have seen certain patterns that we act in certain ways. We plant a seed because we believe it will grow and we harvest because we believe winter will come. So the seasons teach us to believe in a future we cannot yet see, but the unpredictability of the seasons teaches us to trust the one who will bring it to pass. Because you know as well as I do that faith does not come easily. And it is into this that the creator speaks. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Now you understand why the ancients worshiped God along natural rhythms, why fast and feast days aligned with lunar cycles and celestial patterns in times of rain. Worship attends the earth seasons, not because the earth is to be worshiped, but because the seasons teach us the shape of faith. Order and variety, stability and chaos, trust in the unknown. Mm. So one of the things I hear there in terms of um, cultivating, um, faithfulness in our own lives is the importance of memory. You, you know, you talk about kind of looking to the past and looking out into the natural world and remembering that what happened in the past is, is, you know, like carrying that forward into the future and saying, it's, it's not only possible, it's, it's inevitable. Like we can have this confidence about the future rooted in a memory of goodness and faithfulness in the past you know, talk to me more about that. And, and where does the, where does a person start when maybe their memories of the past are not ones of stability and they're, they, they look out into the world and they've, they see, cause we talked about harm, uh, their experiences have been, maybe they've grown up in a really chaotic home. Maybe they're in a really chaotic marriage. Maybe they're, um, experiencing chaos in their, uh, children's lives. You know, if, if you're walking with it, a child who has, you know, a severe disability and there's just chaos all around you. Maybe you're growing up in a, in a neighborhood full of uh, crime and violence and, and chaos, or maybe your workplace is full of that. You know, just, you can think of all the different scenarios where people might go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sounds great, but like, it's not in their bones. It's not like internalized, right. you know, talk more about that. Yeah. And in at risk of doubling down on natural relation, um, but I really do believe in this. I've, I've heard counselors say things like this. Trust is broken in a lot of dim different dimensions. Um, our trust with God can be fractured because of people who misrepresent him. Our trust with ourselves, like we don't even trust ourselves to act in certain ways. Our trust with others. Um, 
But one of the things that some people can access, even if they can't access these other places that need to be, trust needs to be rebuilt, is they can access the natural world. And this can be a place of healing um, because it testifies to the kind of trustworthy cycles of God. And so for some people, I've, I've heard counselors say, it doesn't do some people any good to sit in an office and try to build trust with people who have hurt them, that they actually need to exit those spaces and find other ways of building just the category of trust itself, um, to learn to trust something else so that you can regain that um, rhythm and habit of trusting it in itself. Um, and then, you know, as you take those small steps toward um, being able to trust certain things, I think it, it really is learning to trust God to have preserved and kept us. And um, I know in my own life, when I come up on a situation that is scary or anxious, or I think I'm never going to make it through this, how, how is this going to happen? Memory can be very helpful. The same memories that make me anxious because my body is responding to this sense of we've been in a dangerous situation before. We know how this happens. Let's get out of this. There are also memories of God preserving me or providing or showing up in ways that are inexplicable. And, um, you know, just you could not explain them in any other way except that God showed himself faithful. And so I think we often have the, the um, just the natural inclination to remember dangerous things and scary things because that's what preserves us into the future. But sometimes we have to work to remember the truthful things about who God is and to rehearse them to ourselves and to rehearse them to the people around us and our children and to say, do you remember that time where daddy didn't have a job and yet we paid all of our bills and God took care of us and we actually came out with more on the other side than we went in. So just that kind of rehearsing to ourselves, I think is really essential. That's really good. Yeah. So rehearsing, remembering God's faithfulness, both in the natural world, in the scriptures, you know, there's a big call to remember, you know, the, the supernatural acts of God, I was reading Psalm 78, you know, just going back and rehearsing uh, all the ways that God had been faithful to deliver the Israelites and how in, uh, in Jesus, all those promises are now being made to us and are being fulfilled um, through Christ to us. And so that, that remembering that rehearsing is the way that God wants to, to repair the trust structures of our hearts. Then there's also probably the need to actually repair broken trust, right? Like when trust is broken and we're not that we don't show up in those ways to other people, um, creating communities of trust starts with repairing broken trust, which means sometimes going back and, you know, providing restitution for things that have been, uh, broken in the past, uh, restoring things that have been broken to those to whom we've broken trust. So maybe there's some self-examination that needs to take place. You know, where have I not been a trustworthy person? Where do I need to confess that and own that? Um, recognizing that God is, God has forgiven me. Um, and God is reconciling me to him and he's repairing the, the trust I've broken with him in Jesus. And so I can offer that to others. Um, yeah. I mean, where do you see some of those opportunities for people to begin to rebuild that if you've lost it or, you know, maybe in big ways or maybe just in small ways, you know, how can we as the church 
begin to repair that reputation um, for harm that exists for so many and really create a trusting, stable, um, you know, communities, both, I think, like kind of in the organic sense of just interpersonally, but also institutionally. Yeah, I think our um, current models for dealing with broken trust and forgiveness and restoring trust are, are very, they're just poverty stricken. They're just terrible. There, there is no way that the models that we are working with will actually rebuild trust because more often than not, what happens is trust is broken. We, if we confront it, if we do, um, we kind of put the onus on the person who has been harmed to just forgive and get over it and just move forward. Like, because Jesus forgives us and we just move forward. And what I see in the Old Testament law is this beautiful process of uh, repentance, you know, confronting where trust was broken, um, where faithlessness happened. Um, repentance and restoration through penance, really. That if something has been taken, if trust has been broken, you are to restore it four times over. It's not just that you can be faithful one more time and now you've proven yourself. You have to be faithful four times what you had proven yourself to be faithless in. And, and I think that kind of long term, like this has to be habitual. The same way that we learn trust to begin with, where it's a cycle that we learn the pattern and we learn to recognize the pattern of a person's behavior and we learn we can trust them. Once that's broken, to rebuild that isn't just to trust them one more time, it's to reestablish the pattern. And the pattern takes time over and over and over and over again to reestablish. And so I think we have to be willing for the process to take a lot longer um, and require a lot more of us than what we want it to be, which is one and done. Um, faithfulness is by definition a repeated thing. It is something that can be proven over the long term because you've seen it play out over and over and over again. Mm. And that means when trust is broken, you're going to have to see that faithfulness restored over and over and over and over again. Mm. It makes me think of uh, Jubilee in the Old Testament. You know, we think about the natural world, even God's faithfulness to the poor, to the, uh, the quartet of the vulnerable. Um, one of the ways that God set that up in the law, which we don't actually ever know if it was followed, right? Like it, there's no evidence that it actually happened, but that's the mechanism for faithfulness and justice, uh, in this case and forgiveness and restitution, reconciliation, all these things repair was Jubilee and every, you know, every seven uh, Sabbaths, every seven sabbaticals, you know, we had these cycles of Jubilee where the land would return back to the original owners and all the injustices, all of the um, inequities would be resolved. And, uh, it was a way for families to keep their land, but also to re kind of reset community trust, social trust. Right. And so, cause not only those who've been harmed, but those who do the harming also suffer the impact of faithlessness. They feel, uh, they, they carry the guilt, they carry the shame, they carry the anxiety, the, the fear of being discovered and found out. And so in a sense, it's, it's a way to kind of level the playing field and, concretely with the land say, I am a faithful God. I'm faithful to those who've been oppressed, but I'm also faithful to the oppressor. And I'm constantly giving them an opportunity or creating an opportunity for them to experience my faithfulness in a very like economic material, 
uh, embodied kind of way. And I was listening to a podcast recently about Andy Crouch, uh, one of my favorite authors, and he was talking about some of the possibilities beyond COVID and talking about this breakdown of social trust and what he called a K-shaped recovery, where some people are kind of moving up into the right and many are moving down into the right at the same time. There's winners and losers. And it, and he said, it's something I'll never forget. He just said, beware of jubilation without jubilee. And, and I think of this opportunity that we have in, in a way as a, as a reset, it's an opportunity for us to say, well, you know, what have we learned in the last year? We've learned that um, there's a lot of faithlessness in the world. Um, and I know a lot of people have lost confidence in the church and in the community, but man, we have also an incredible opportunity through the very small acts of just keeping our promises as God's kept his promises to us, participating with God and his faithfulness in the world. Uh, cultivating that kind of faithfulness in our everyday lives with our kids, with our roommates, with our spouses in our church communities. What an incredible time in some ways to be alive, to say that, that that's not like a, a really high bar. <laughs> it's not, it's not like a, a, a spectacular thing, uh, but it is a, a crucial one if we're going to seek to rebuild social trust. Absolutely. And I, I love your point about this process being freeing for those who have broken trust. Because the way I reinstill my children's trust in me is I am on time for them and I pick them up. Um, and, and that is as freeing for me as it is for them to be able to prove yourself a faithful person mm. after um, the, the trust has been broken. And I think that's part of what we lose when we don't have these categories of penance and restitution. It is not simply the loss to the person who has been victimized. It is the loss of the person who has harmed having no way to redeem, to be redeemed. And, and we're not talking about, you know, like a work salvation or a works forgiveness. We're just saying that it's a tangible way for you to deal with your guilt. Mm. It's, it's a way for you to resolve the harm you now have come to recognize um, and repent of. And here it is. It's, you know, it's Zacchaeus who goes and sells and gives to the poor after he meets Jesus. It's whoever I've harmed, I'm going to care for. And that is freeing for us mm. when we are faithless. And mm. I think it's just a beautiful practice that if we understood what it was doing, would be far more welcome um, in our spaces. Mm. Yeah, that's good news for everyone, right? Like that's what we, that Jesus says. One day we stand before the Father and in, in Him, and, and we hear, "Well done, good and faithful servant." And that's what Christ is doing. And the good news of the gospel is making it possible for both those who've been oppressed and been on the wrong side of uh, somebody's faithlessness to experience God's faithfulness, as well as those who've done the harming. And in many ways, we're all both. <laughs> you know, we've all done that in small and large ways. Um, but this is a big undertaking and we need the Holy spirit to help us, which is why it's a fruit of the spirit. So would you pray, uh, just over our communities, we close out the series and close out this podcast, um, and just pray for, uh, a new imagination and new, uh, liturgies of faithfulness to rise up in our communities. Heavenly father, we are in awe of your faithfulness. We see how you have displayed yourself faithful in everything from the seasons um, to the pool of gravity to even our own lives where you have provided for us time and time again. And we trust you. It is hard in this world to trust because we have all been so harmed 
we have harmed others, we have been harmed by others, but we know that you are a trustworthy God, that you have proven yourself faithful. Lord, we ask that through your spirit, you will make us people who are faithful like you, that it won't simply be duty or obligation, but that we will find a deep satisfaction and joy in fulfilling our commitments and showing up and being the people that we say we are and that we will be changed into the likeness of your son who himself was found faithful and we ask this all in his name amen, amen.